everybody. This is Greg Refner with the Abstract Podcast, and we have Greg Head with us today. Uh, Greg was the formal CMO at Infusionsoft, advisor at Scaling Point, and founder at Gregslist.com. Uh, Greg, please take a moment and say hi, sir. Hey, Greg. Nice to be on your podcast here. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. I'm really excited. And hopefully the Greg and Greg back and forth doesn't create too much confusion for our listeners today. Um, so we're going to be doing things from a little bit of a different perspective today. Um, usually we're talking with operators within an organization, sales leaders, revenue leaders, kind of talking best practices, but um, we're going to actually go a little bit outsider's perspective a little bit today. And Greg actually has a lot of experience working with um, companies of all sizes. So let's lay a little bit of a foundation first, Greg, so that everybody kind of has a basis of understanding of where maybe some of your guidance and, and thoughts come from. Um, you were at Infusionsoft from early days, um, pretty well-known story here in the Phoenix area. They're now called Keep. Um, for anyone who hasn't read your LinkedIn profile, what are some of the, the major milestones that you guys achieved over there at uh, Infusionsoft, Infusionsoft slash Keep? Well, I've been in the software business for over 30 years. So I've been doing the startup to scale crazy journey uh, since the early 90s. So I started in the sales software game with ACT contact management software, which when salespeople were getting computers and learning to type and we grew that and sold it to Symantec up to 4 million users. Anybody's old enough remembers ACT in the 90s, one of the boxes that was the top 20 product. And uh, the founder of ACT, I started uh, another company, uh, made it to Phoenix uh, called SalesLogix, which is one of the early CRM uh, for mid-market uh, companies. We grew that up, went public, actually bought ACT back from Symantec. So I did, and then in, in FusionSoft, uh, I was the chief marketing officer, helping grow from 10 million to 100 million. So I wasn't there at the very beginning, uh, like the other ones, and uh, helped that grow. So I've been part of the growth journey. I've done everything in the software business except code. I've run software businesses. I've run sales, marketing, product, uh, product management, and all that other stuff. So I get my hands deep in it, uh, and I've been running and executing inside businesses, driving revenue and building products and categories and all that stuff for, for all that time. For the last five years, I've been helping all the crazy founders I know uh, who are creating software businesses. Uh, so that's what I do full-time now. I don't have to do anything. That's what I do to help. Uh, some of that ended up on gregslist.com, where I curate a list of all the software companies in Phoenix, Dallas, other cities, and uh, I invest and I consult, but mostly I advise. So I talk to 500 founders a year uh, about their crazy software startups. And there's some laws of nature that have never changed in founders and markets and growth. And, <laughs> and then I get to keep up with this week's valuation, marketing tools, you know, SDR tactics, whatever. Yeah. That's awesome. So that was going to be my question. Uh, how many companies do you talk to? How many founders do you talk to? So 500 or so on average a year is the number of uh, different founders you're yeah. talking to. That's roughly 10 a week. And I, talking to more probably. Um, and in today's Zoom world, I'm Zooming with India and Ukraine and Phoenix and Boston and Silicon Valley and the rest. Generally, it's outside Silicon Valley. They have enough help and therapy and <laughs> like the ecosystem and, you know, it's in the water. That's what you do yeah. kind of thing. But elsewhere, it's, you don't know, your neighbors aren't starting startups too. And every friend of yours is not starting startups. So, so uh, yeah, so I'm a translator and a you know, advisor to a lot of uh, founders. That's awesome. So mentioning you, you mentioned your neighbors, right? So I, um, I have neighbors, teachers, UPS drivers, um, right. and everybody's like, wait, wait, you started a software company. 
And, right. and, and so it, it's not as second nature as you would think if you go outside of this, this kind of bubble, especially here in Phoenix. Um, it's right. not as common yeah. as kind of Silicon yeah, Valley. Yeah, especially anywhere outside Silicon Valley. So yeah. in Silicon Valley, if you're the one out of 20 neighbors that works for a normal company, you're the outsider. Everybody's yep. working in tech. <laughs> but everywhere else, it's, I mean, uh, let's just say it. Starting a software company, starting a company of any time is abnormal. I see a problem in the world. I'm going to make a software. I'm going to make a company. We're going to change the problem is not what almost anybody does. So startups are popular and we think it's easy and they're cool and everywhere and all that stuff, but it's still a crazy adventure and abnormal. So now I know you're abnormal, Greg. Oh, 1000%. My wife um, for the past two years, I think every day wakes up and goes like, I don't think there's something's not right in your head for you wanting to do this. Yeah. And um, I think yeah. it's probably fair to say, actually. <laughs> and also the people I work with, right? We're the ones who are creating the new things that eventually become the jobs and the roads and the factories or whatever that that uh, that happen. We are not very good at running those factories. We're good yeah. at finding problems and making things happen. And uh, it's, you know, it's abnormal. Your mom says, stop doing that. And people say, we don't need another software and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, those are the ones I help. Perfect. I we love need it. that in the world. Yeah, we do. They, they change the world. So yeah, one of the things that's been interesting in my experience over the past two years, Greg, is I come from a marketing sales background. And um, what I've realized that that is that's pretty atypical. And it, so is it a fair assumption that most of the startup founders that you talk to are not coming with a sales marketing background? Like what's that persona of that typical crazy person who wants to start a software company? Yeah, so I'm talking to a lot of software company founders. So I'm working in the early stage. I've helped grow bigger companies. I don't work with big companies. I got enough help. Work with the ones who are building new products and getting companies up and running and scaling companies. And I can also see with Greg's list, 700 software companies in Phoenix, I see all of the companies. We've found them all, right? Mm -hmm. We keep adding when they, your, your company abstract is on there. And so I could see a little different dimension than the world sees that we just see the big winners who are getting big funding or IPOs or, you know, they're on stage or they have their company name on the building and so forth. I get to see everybody and especially in the early stage. So I would say there's two sides to answer your question. There's two sides of that, of the equation in creating a software technical company. That's a startup that's going to grow. There is the business side, the sales and marketing operations will follow, but getting customers uh, and growing revenues is one side and building the product and services or whatever that delivers that value is the other side. So those are the two lobes of the brain. And those are usually the two co-founders, the business and the technical, and they overlap. The technical person can speak business. The business person can speak product. But um, I would say that most founders that I see these days and on Greg's list come from the business side. Okay. Not all of them. I'd say it's slightly more than half. I'd say there's technical founders out there, meaning they're coders and they come from the technology building side. They want to create a company and they want to build something. But it's more typical these days that the business folks are saying, I see a problem in the world. I want to make a company out of it. Let me go get help to build it. Interesting. Okay. That's not what I would have thought. Um, yeah. I would have thought it'd be the other way around because if you're an engineer developer, and you see a problem, you can go code it, right? Your barrier to entry is a little bit lower because you already have that skill set to go execute well, on building that product. Yeah, I think uh, 
like Y Combinator, the um, celebrity incubator in yeah. Silicon Valley, yeah. brings in technical founders that see off in the distance a problem, and they can do the magic that if they can define the problem and how to get customers faster, they can build faster. They don't have to pay engineers. They can sit on somebody's couch and build a product. So it's just time investment, and they can move fast and pivot. But uh, even in Silicon Valley, I don't think the overwhelming number of them are um, are technical founders. If it, I mean, it's not all business founders or all technical founders, but I'd say there's in the startup world in SaaS software these days, uh, I'd say the business side is uh, winning, and they have to figure out the technical side, and the technical people have to figure out the business side. So you can't you can't uh, just lean one way or the other. Okay, I like that. I, I, again, that, that, that's surprising to me. Um, so I know when I started Abstract, um, it was a challenge to find a technical co-founder. Um, yes. I, I went on, there's a website called Co-Founders Lab, used a yep. bunch of different resources, um, LinkedIn, like finding someone who was on board with taking the risk, investing the time, um, building out a small proof of concept, like that was not an easy process. It actually right. took me 37 different um, groups or individuals, studios, before I finally found somebody to help say, yes, let's do this. Um, where, where are you seeing those business startup founders find success in getting that technical counterpart to come help them with like a MVP proof of concept? Well, let's see. Uh... Not everybody who starts a software company has a technical co-founder and a business co-founder. So they're relying on what they are to start usually uh -huh. and get something in there to prove it. So maybe the difficulty in finding a technical co-founder is part of the supply and demand. There's more business founders looking for technical founders and there are technical founders looking for business could be a lot of reasons for that, but um, maybe that's the deal. Um, what I'm seeing is business founders getting enough versed in product, getting enough help to build their MVP and their 1.0 product from advisors and friends and part-time CTO, you know, early stage uh, therapists uh, to get those things going. But um, what I'm seeing is that if you're a full, you know, full stack coder and you're a great coder and you're looking for the opportunity, you're like an investor looking to invest a million dollars. It's probably worth more than a million dollars to a CTO. Yeah. Maybe they say like in my, you know, time coin, you know, it's $5 million, <laughs> but they're saying they're looking at a portfolio of companies and they're saying, just like investors do, who's furthest along, which is the best fit, which has the best uh, odds of success. So it's very difficult to get a superstar to come into your venture unless you're, they're your brother or you work together on the same industry or problem at a different company and that kind of thing. So what I'm actually seeing is the business side founders going out to get in the market and prove something and show a little traction, show that there's a there there for C to attract CTOs who want to place their bets. You know, they have a little finite amount of time and all of that. Uh, sometimes it's just uh, two pals, one business side, one technical, and they're uh, experimenting to find something to go start. So. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's uh, focus a little bit more on the technical founder side, because, you know, candidly, that's 
the, the area where I found I'm most curious about is because that's not yeah. who I am. And so for, for yeah. technical founders, um, marketing led growth strategy is obviously where, where scaling point kind of focuses. Mm -hmm. Like what's the hardest part of getting a technical founder on board with this idea that you, you need the business development side, you need the marketing, you need the sales, um, you need to get that messaging right when you go to market to really lead that growth. Like what are some of the things you guys overcome at Scaling Point and how do you overcome those? Yeah, so at Scaling Point, I advise and consult with, uh, with founders of, of companies I, and I mentor with people who are just getting on the field. So pre-revenue and all of that too. So I'm talking to both and I do talk to technical founders and business side leaders that want to start something and they're using whatever muscle you know they can start with kind of thing that's what yeah. you got to do so uh technical founders or coders that say i can build something and i have friends who are coders and i'm just going to start building uh -huh. uh, kind of thing so the usual challenge is there they've built something and then they get it built and sometimes overbuilt and uh, they get out and they say all right now i want to sell it and they could sell it to a few friends and then they you know uh, so I would say technical founders are not creating startups just to create products. They want to create businesses and value and win the prize. And they know the prize is a function of revenue and growth, not a function of how many lines of code you've created. Uh -huh. So they are generally underestimating the challenge. So 90% of software companies have enough product to sell, not enough customer revenues and growth. Uh, not everybody knows that yet. So technical founders are the ones that build it and they will come. They start with the product, a solution in search of a problem or a customer, <laughs> as they say. It's been said before. Yeah. And so convincing them when they start, I don't know, it's, it's like my whiteboard against your whiteboard and whatever. Like the world is telling them this. They're not hearing it. So they go build a product and they generally go too far. That's the modern product market fit problem, the modern, you know, lean startup, don't get too far ahead of your skis problem. But eventually they hit the wall. They're trying to grow and do something bigger, change the world and create a company. And they get stuck because they're not uh, growing and they generally have more product than they have business. And they know they're under muscle over there and it hits them like a ton of bricks. So, um, the converse can happen too. the sales and marketing guys who under muscle on product. They uh -huh. think that a mediocre product to work and, uh, you know, they really aren't really able to respond very fast to what their customers are saying to pivot in. So the magic happens when you have enough of a business sense, enough of a product sense to get out there and experiment. That's what startups are experiment and try things and move fast enough to find something that will scale. That's what a startup is. It's not a pre big business. It's an experiment. It's a test. And so all of that experimenting, trial, pivoting, whatever it is, it's easier if you have a strong sense of the business side and a strong sense of the technical side and could move fast. And I'll say one more thing, Greg. Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and other super technical, super architects, brilliant software architects, they can learn business. Yeah. The business guys can't learn <laughs> to be super technical architects. So it's figure outable uh, on both sides. Yeah. But business people need some help. Business yeah. people do need some help. Well, so think about going back through 500 companies you talk to a year. Um, is it generally pretty easy for you to 
kind of walk away from a, a meeting or an introduction call with the founder and go like, yep, they're going to be successful. They have the flexibility, the um, introspection to understand where their weak spots are. Like, do you, do you generally walk away with a pretty good idea of who's going to be successful and who's not? Well, I see a lot of companies, not just the successful ones that end up in the news with the big funding, right? Yeah. So I get to see all of them and a lot of friends of mine. And the default scenario for a startup is it doesn't scale, right? <laughs> doesn't last. So it's an experiment and it's, that's, it's kind of brutal out there. So, <laughs> so, you know, the investors, VC investors and smaller angel investors and so forth, they know that the world is changing and that people are going to help change the world and so forth. And there's products and so forth. So I'd say it's part to answer your question about, do I know about a founder? And so I do have an intuitive sense. I have a structured approach and there's an intuitive sense, but investors and myself and everybody else is who's seen their game before, seen the beginning, middle and end over and over and over and over and the meat grinder and all of that. Uh, we have, we, we could say there's a few things. I can smell traction or no traction. I built this thing. How many customers do you have? We have one. How happy are they? The product market fit kind of thing. Uh, do, you know, do you have a little factory? Can you repeat it? Are there more like them? How are you doing? So that's just a little bit proof beyond the whiteboard, right? Of the world, yep. a little traction. So we're all looking for traction. The other thing is we're looking at the founder saying, will you be able to figure out and make happen all the things you need to figure out and make happen? And the world is conspiring against you, COVID, running out of money, you know, et cetera. And it's a function, I would say it's aligning what they want out of their startup with their capability. Like the billion dollar unicorn change the world, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, or whatever else that we see from Silicon Valley, that classic, you know, moonshot. Yep. Those are really off the charts people as far as getting crazy stuff done and overcoming crazy obstacles that would kill normal people instantly. So, so you kind of pick your battle. So there's very few of those people that will do that. Um, and that's what the big bets in VCR, but I'm looking at, are you, you know, uh, can normal people who have serious grit and a great nose and a sense and diligent and focus built million to $5 million businesses that are worth five to 10 times that in the recurring revenue SaaS game? Yes, they can. But when somebody's most people, when they, by the time they get to me, they're not like, I read this book on startups and I want to do something <laughs> once in a while they get to me, but mostly they're like, I've been like you, I've been in this market for 10 years. I've been doing it. I see an opportunity. I did this crazy thing after another, and I'm building something. So uh, most investors, that's the founder grit get measurement. Like that's, it's real. Yeah. It's just not like uh, going to school and go to class and reading the textbook and getting the grade. Those are all worked out. Those are lanes that are this thin. Yeah. Um, you know, this is like uh, go to Mexico and create a company in three months and learn the language, <laughs> right? Without a book. Come on, go. Right. And then you get there and your passport. And then you, you know, it's like one crazy obstacle, Indiana Jones, the boulder rolling after another. You know, and there's degrees of that depending on how fast and how high you're scaling. So that's real. I think yeah. you could say the same thing about salespeople as well. 
yeah. for whatever role they are, do they have the tenacity to do the thing that normal people won't do? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that Boulder scenario that you just mentioned, it's so funny. We, uh, we were onboarding one of our customers. They have 50 users. And um, for whatever reason, their email server stripped out the temporary password in our temporary password email that we were sending. Hmm. And so we had 50 users that were all trying to onboard and none of them were getting their password. And right. so it was like, what is happening? Like, how do we fix this? We had to go change our whole email service provider. We had to change right. the way that email was written and we yeah. had to do it in like 48 hours. Yeah. And like it, it really is that every single day, something you're, you're fighting, something you're adapting to. Yeah. Imagine that little obstacle like, yeah. Oh, all right, people, we don't have your textbooks this week. And you know, uh, we're going to do it remote. We still got to get to the answer, right? Oh, but though that's a pretty small one. Imagine doing 10 of those a week and, you know, nine of them fail and you have to fix them. Yeah. And then, then a big one comes along and says, you know, we're, uh, you know, that big customer that was going to pay you this quarter, they're not. Yep. Yeah. We'll figure it out. No. So, so there's, uh, there's that. So uh, I t- have total respect and understanding for the, the craziness, uh, the survival uh, ability, the relentlessness and the courage to go create something despite all those obstacles. Yeah. I love it. Well, let's, um, let's talk about a little bit, like maybe you overcome those obstacles and um, you're, you're looking to kind of take that next step. Um, What is a good indicator maybe that I'm ready to pour some gas on the fire? Um, I know you've written a lot on yeah. LinkedIn about yeah, yeah, like, I've a lot they, on LinkedIn about like yeah. you know when to bring in outside funding, the VC game versus kind of yeah. organically growing. Well, there's like, a few questions there. So yeah. let's say Greg, you've got a product, you've got some early customers, uh, and you're like, all right, I'm quitting my day job, let's go, kind of thing. So there's a couple questions there. So when do you know you've got something that could go to the next level? I mean, any founder that says, I've got something and I know it's going to be a unicorn. No, uh, it's not, you won't be a unicorn, but like, you don't know. So stop saying that. Yeah. Right. Your job is to get to the next level and not die. So no, serious. So you got a product that's of customers and the rest. When do I quit my day job and get serious about this to the next level? That could be before product market fit, the classic, I have a thing, a product, and then for certain customers, they love it. It's amazing. They tell their friends, and it's different than the com- competition. Ten times better than the competition kind of thing, the alternative. And there's varying degrees of all of that. But that's the first, in between I'm starting, that's the first milestone product market fit, which investors created as a milestone between the crazy experiments of startups and the factory that you could kind of add water to it. And there's degrees of fit, degrees of product, degrees of market, degrees of fit, and all of that. And it's not as simple, but generally I would say that founders in the firefight who want to create a company and they're invested in their vision, underestimate product market fit. They think if I could sell it and people are using it and they're not throwing it back, then I have product market fit. That's not enough. You got to have people say, wow, this is great. We love this. We tell our friends, we want to buy more. And in the modern SaaS business, you got to get them to 
stay for years and expand, or you don't have a business and recurring revenue. So, so when do you know when you have product market fit? You're out there experimenting, selling this to these people, and they want that, and you want selling this to these people. When you find enough people that look about the same. So, Greg, you could sell your software to all kinds of different companies, big companies, startups, uh, companies that use Salesforce, those that don't, uh, companies in Silicon Valley, companies in the Midwest, companies in London, companies in India, you know, anybody that's got people on the phones. Uh, kind of thing. So it's a pretty wide net. So you kind of have to figure out where it is. But product market fit is it's amazing enough for somebody compared to the alternatives that they're saying, I love it. I'll pay you. I'll buy more. Tell my friends. And there's enough of them to do that. So most software startups don't make it to product market fit that could scale. And there's an overlap in there, meaning can I reach them? Can I sell them? Is the price reasonable? Can I make money? Can I acquire customers for what they want, uh, for what we can sell it for, which is part of the scale thing uh -huh. that you have to be kind of playing with. There's an overlap to people love it. And then I could find them and sell them that, uh, you know, if you do one after the other, it kind of doesn't work. You kind of have to do that game together. So, the, you know, that's the, the thing. There's uh, some people say, wow, this is amazing, you know, degrees of amazing, but it's got, you know, it's got to be more than just they, they, we sold it and they bought it and they stayed. And are there enough of them? Yeah. Like, hey, like if we threaten to take it away, they're going to freak out because they love it so much. Or they yeah, that's the old so statement. Yeah, take it, you can't take it on my cold, dead hands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Well, let's, let's button this up with the, the inverse of that. So um, failure rate of startups is well documented. What are... And this kind of even hurts my soul a little bit to even ask this question, throw this out into the universe, Greg, but like, what are some of the things that are indicators that, you know what, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right product. This isn't the right solution trying to find a pain. Like, when do you, when do you know, like, okay, next. Yeah. Yeah. So the myth is I have an idea and I'm relentless. Okay. That's what happened. That's what we hear about. Facebook, right? And all that. But he had product market fit, meaning the servers went down and people across the pond were trying to sign up and right? That level of amazing. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't get that, what do you do? And that's the more common story. And we just don't see movies about that. Yeah. So, um, so it's a great question because very talented people who are capable of doing new things in the world, they see an idea and if they're just relentless forever, then they can waste five, 10 years of their life. And it is brutal. It is brutal when you're in it too long and you can't find it. So it's, when is the time to keep pivoting and trying? And when is the time to stop? Um, that's a, it's a really important question. And I think anybody who has not found product market fit, uh, some of them stayed too long. So the opportunity cost is huge, not just to go to a day job, to find a better opportunity. So I think it's a series of couple years of trying the experiments and earnestly doing it and honestly doing it, not just faking it. Yeah. Uh, but if you can't get people to stand up and say amazing and find more of them, funder, you know, funding will follow you. And, but um, uh, it's a waste of 10 years of your life. So what I see is another way to think about it, Greg, is most of the founders I know who are succeeding because they found product market fit, got to scale and kept on going, 
they had 10 ideas. They were throwing out there at once. And then one kind of caught. And then they followed that one as opposed to committing to one and then saying it has to work. I'm good at my job. It has to work. No, it doesn't. Doesn't always work. Don't quit your day job kind of thing. So, so yeah, I, 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 I think it's underappreciated how relentless and how many tries it's going to take to find something that clicks. Yeah. Either exper- if different experiments or, you know, experiments in a startup. And uh, yeah, that's what, uh, if I could back it up here. When people say, I got a startup idea, I need funding. I mean, first of all, the funding is waiting on the other side of product market fit. The professional funding is waiting on the other side of product market fit. But like, I wouldn't, as a founder, commit to funding and all that until you know the idea has proof. And I would be backing it up and trying it till you know. And if you really have product market fit, like you should be able to grow your company without a lot of outside funding. They tell their friends, they buy more and the rest. So funding isn't the answer. It's just fuel. Yeah. Right. So That's... product market fits the answer kind of thing. So th- th- this is the problem, Greg. It's pretty amazing. And I put three years of my life into it. Well, do you want a little slow growth, small business kind of thing? Or do you want to, you know, have the next big thing? There's degrees of that. So well, that answers your question specifically. That's a tough one. And uh, the resource here of great founders doing great things. I wish so many of them didn't spend 10 years in something that wasn't going to work. So it sounds like it's somewhere between crazy, a couple of years, 10 ideas, no more than 10 years, somewhere mm-hmm. in between all of that is when you yeah. should uh, maybe hang up the towel and try something else. Yeah. Try something else. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've described this as, you know, startups, it's not a business yet. It's looking for a business. And your goal is to survive long, long enough to find the fit that could be turned into a business, a good yeah. business. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you run out of capital, right? You got you to gotta pay the mortgage and feed your kids. Sometimes, you know, you quit the day job too early. Yep. Uh, sometimes you thought there'd be infinite funding. There isn't, you know, if you don't get to product market fit. So sometimes you run out of resources. That's a pretty good excuse, but it's pretty much, you know, uh, the failure rate. Uh, we didn't have enough funding. No, you didn't get up to amazing enough Fast to get enough. customer customer funding called revenue and follow on called funding. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Well, Greg, this has been awesome. We went a little bit longer than we normally planned, but um, I really appreciate the, uh, the chat today. So I really, I took away some, some pretty big things. Um, first off, I was surprised that the majority of people you're talking to are more on the business side. I thought there'd be way more technical people coming to you looking for marketing-led growth strategy. Um, I thought that was interesting. And then the kind of being able to wear both both hats, use both sides of the brain, whether you're a technical founder, you need to understand the business side. If you're on the business side, you need to at least have the chops to understand what people are talking about um, to to make sure that things are going in the right way. And then finally, um, anybody who's starting a software company is crazy, um, myself included. So I think just crazy enough. Generalize that. It's not off the charts. It's just not what your neighbors do. Yeah, it's definitely not what my neighbors do. Uh, well, Greg, any final words before we uh, part ways, sir? 
Well, if people want to follow what I'm talking about for early stage founders, those getting on the thinking about starting a software company or a tech company and those getting on the field and up and through it and so forth. Once you've got five, 10 million, you've got the factory going, you've got VPs of everything and funding, you've got plenty of help, but I'm talking about the early stage one and those thinking about it, you can go find me on LinkedIn, um, Greg Head, H-E-A-D on LinkedIn. And, you know, the funny thing is, Greg, that there's 62 Greg heads on LinkedIn. So this is a thing. I own Greg head in Phoenix and Dallas and the rest, but you go out of the world and there's 62 of us. And then you realize, oh, there's way more competition. So that's another lesson for founders. <laughs> way more people doing this than you think. So they can find me on LinkedIn or gregslist.com, my list of all the software companies uh, or a scaling point and check things out with useful content. I appreciate that. Well, you answered my question. How do people get a hold of you if they want to uh, follow what you're doing? And uh, I think uh, some of the, the stuff you post on LinkedIn is insightful for some of the things you share from conversations with founders. So I always enjoy when you put out the, the little bit of tidbits of information. So appreciate your time to today, sir. This was awesome. And uh, thank you again for spending time with us. Thanks, Greg. Bye.